My name is Morgan. We are in a sermon series entitled God Is, where we've been looking at the attributes of God. This morning, uh, as Steve said, we're looking at God's goodness. God is good. And I think for each one of us, there's probably been a moment in our lives where we've wondered that question. Is God good? When we face difficulty, when we face tragedy, is God good? And this morning, I hope we can walk away and pray that saying, yes, God is good. And I believe that God has something for each one of us this morning. Whatever burdens we bring in or carry, I believe that God has something for each one of you this morning. We use the word good a lot, right? In a whole bunch of different ways. What do you think of the new restaurant in Greeley Centennial? Oh, it's good. What do you think about coffee? Good. How are you today? Pretty good. What do you think about your recent vacation. How was that? Oh, so good. What do you think about camping? Good? We use the word good a lot, and we mean a lot of different things by it. So we're going to start out looking at a couple different scripture passages to kind of orient ourselves around what scripture says in terms of when scripture says God is good. First Chronicles 16, 34 says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Psalm 119.68 says, you are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. And Psalm 34.8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So what does the first verse say? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. That God's goodness ought to cause in us a response of thanksgiving. You are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. So God's character and God's actions, you are good and what you do is good are linked. And then God's character and God's actions are linked it says, teach me your decrees. That uh, these things, God's goodness ought to constitute in us a posture of learning. Teach me your decrees, your laws, your rules. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Talking about experiencing his goodness. It's not enough to just know God's goodness intellectually, but we need to experience God's goodness. First 25 or so years of my life, I ate food. Shock. Um, and then I went to a three-star Michelin restaurant. There's 138, I think, in the world currently. And that I was experiencing a level of food that I had not experienced in my life before and did not know was possible. 
I didn't know food could taste like that, that I experienced food in a different way, even though, and I think that's something of, we want to experience God's goodness, truly experience it. And when we do, it blows everything else that we know away. So what do we mean by the fact that God is good? Here's a couple quotes. Um, J.I. Packer said that God is the final standard of good and that all God is and does is worthy of approval. And so he's saying that whatever our standard of goodness is, God is the ultimate standard. God is the final standard. God is the highest standard of goodness. Louis Burkhoff said that the goodness of God is the perfection of God, which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. That God's goodness is that which prompts him in his posture towards humanity. Um, and A.W. Tozer says this, God's goodness is not the same as saying he is righteous or holy. The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward humanity. God is tender-hearted, of quick sympathy. His unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is opened, frank, friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. God's disposition towards humanity is that of kindness, of goodness. God delights in the happiness of humanity, of his people. So God's goodness stems from who he is, but God's goodness is specific towards his disposition towards humanity, the way that he deals with humanity. So this morning we're going to be looking uh, at Exodus chapter 33. If you have a copy of God's word um, or a phone, it'll also be on the screens behind me. But we're going to be looking at a story where Moses is interacting with God. Moses was leading the Israelites, the people of God, and they were enslaved in Egypt. And Moses leads them out, and then they're in the wilderness. Moses goes up on a mountain and receives from God... Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are related to the way we interact with God and others. One of the Ten Commandments is put no gods before me, the primary one, the first one. So Moses receives the Ten Commandments and comes down the mountain, and what he sees is that the people thought that he was taking too long up on the mountain, so they decided to make a golden statue, and started worshiping that. So in Moses' anger, Moses threw the commandments and they shattered, they broke. So Moses has to go up, back up, get the Ten Commandments again before he goes back down. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning is in between that. So Moses goes back up 
the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments a second time. And this is where we are going to be this morning. Exodus 33, we're going to look at verse 12 through 23, and I'll read um, all of it here. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. God's disposition towards Moses is good and kind, even in Moses' sin and in Moses' anger and his failure to lead the people and in the people's sin. But what does Moses say to God here? In verse 13, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Moses says, help me grow more and more so that I can continue walking with you. It's a posture of growth, a posture of learning, of continuing to grow, of never being stagnated. We should always be people who are continuing to learn, continuing to grow, continuing to seek to experience God's goodness more and more in our lives. And I think for a lot of us, if you think back years or decades, think about a time in your life where you were growing a lot with Jesus. What's stopping you from continuing that today? Maybe it's a lot of different things, but is our posture that of always seeking to learn more about the one we've been talking about in this series? Or is our posture that of, I know God, I'm good. No, our posture should always be more. I want to be more intimately acquainted with the Lord. I want to know him more. I want to 
grow in my knowledge and understanding and experience of his goodness. Romans 2.4 says that God's kindness, or can also be translated his goodness, is meant to lead you to repentance. That God's goodness is meant to motivate us to continually turn back to God more and more in our lives. In this series, we have looked at God's incommunicable attributes. The attributes that God does not share with us in any way. The traits of God that are his and his alone. We've looked at God being infinite. God being unchanging. God being omnipresent, that he's in all places at all times, always. His omnipotence, the fact that he has and possesses all power. God's omniscience, the fact that, as I said, we want to continue learning about God. Omniscience says God cannot learn because there's nothing that God does not know, that he knows all things. God is eternal was the middle week in the series where God is eternal. He never had a beginning. You and I did have a beginning. But that when we trust in God, we are linked to the eternal one and we enter into eternal life. We've looked at God's, at the communicable attributes of God the last um, three weeks before today, where the attributes of God, that God is the perfect version of it, and yet we are called in scripture to live into it more and more. We've looked at holiness We've looked at faithfulness. We've looked at love and this morning goodness. That God is the perfect version of it and we are called to grow in each one of those. We're ending the series uh, next week and perhaps some of you, and I, I know for some of you, one of the questions that's been ruminating in your mind, going through your mind as we've gone through the series is what's our response supposed to be? Or does what we do matter? And, and it's been easier the last several weeks that we're called to live into holiness, faithfulness, love, and goodness more and more. But for some of you, I shared that you were, if God is infinite, unchanging, omnipotent, does what we do ultimately matter? Do I have significance? What role do we play? God commands us to do these things, but he's over all, he's unchanging. Does what we do have significance? And in the church, this has led to a longstanding debate about God's sovereignty versus human free will. If God is sovereign, if God is over all things, the big and the small and every detail in between, do we have free will? Do we have choice in what we do? Did you choose to come to church this morning? Some churches have so overemphasized the sovereignty of God that no, human free will, we have no choices in anything. 
And some churches have so overemphasized human free will that God is just waiting in heaven, wanting to do things but unable to do because humans haven't acted yet. And in a beautiful way that we don't know exactly how it works, it's both. We have free will, we make choices, and yet at the same time, the choices that we make freely do not inhibit or undermine the sovereignty of God, that God is over all things, the big and the small and every detail in between. And so if God is sovereign, if he is over all and in control of all things, then the question is, what about sin, evil, and suffering? How can there be sin, evil, and suffering in the world if God is sovereign? If God is who we've been saying he is the last couple months? To say it another way, if God is good, why is there evil? in the world. And in light of the presence of evil and suffering in the world, one argument has been, if God is sovereign, if he is over all things and in control of all things, the big and the small, then he cannot be good because of the presence of evil and suffering in the world. And if God is truly good, then he cannot be sovereign because there's evil and suffering in the world. And the argument continues that if a good and all-powerful God exists, then he would not allow pointless suffering in the world. And because there is so much pointless suffering in the world, then the argument goes, the Christian God cannot exist. Alvin Plantinga is a Christian philosopher, and I think he's offered a helpful way of kind of intellectually looking at, at that argument. And this is where the tent comes in. Do you see a St. Bernard dog in the tent? No. If you look into a tent, for a, there's not one in there, just to be clear. <laughs> if you look into a tent for a St. Bernard dog and you don't see one, which you don't, it is safe to assume that there's not one in there. Why? Because it would be so obvious. But do you, is there a noceum in the tent? A noceum is an incredibly tiny insect that is virtually imperceivable to the human eye. A little bit harder, right? If you don't see a noceum when you look into the tent, 
Can you also say that there's none in there? No. Why? Because even if there was one in there, we couldn't see it. Many people assume that if there were good reasons for the presence and existence of evil in the world, many people assume that it would be clear, easy to see, like the St. Bernard dog. But maybe it's more like the noceum, where even if there is a good reason, that we can't, we can't see it. Just because you and I can't see a purpose in evil or suffering doesn't mean that God in his infinite wisdom and his infinite goodness doesn't have one. Just because we can't see any purpose doesn't mean that none exists. But the whole point is, I can't see him, right? We can't, we can't see, I can't see the purpose. And that is easier to understand intellectually than it is emotionally. Maybe we, maybe you say this morning, okay, I get that, it makes sense. But that doesn't change how I feel. Why would God allow this in my life? Exodus 33 Verse 14, Moses says, if you don't go with us, don't send us out from here. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. God says, my presence will go with you. And then Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up. And then at the end of the passage that we read, God said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. No one may see my face. An interesting thing uh, in the Hebrew of this passage is that that word right there for presence is the same word for face. It's the same word. God says, my face will go with you. And then he later says, but you won't see my face. My face will go with you even though you can't see it. I am with you in the midst of your pain and suffering even if you can't see it, even if you can't see me. God is with you in everything that you will ever encounter in your life even if you can't see him there. God's face is with you even if we don't know what he's doing, even if we can't see the purpose, even if we don't see him there, God says, I will go with you. I will be with you always. There is never anything that you will face that I am not with you in. 
A lot of people think that, that their problem is with the sovereignty of God. The fact that scripture says that God is over all things, even the smallest detail. But your problem isn't with the sovereignty of God. Your problem is with the goodness of God. With the goodness of God. How can we trust the goodness of God? How can we trust his disposition towards us as one of kindness and goodness? How can we trust the goodness of God even in the presence of difficulty, of suffering, of tragedy? How can we trust the goodness of God even in the midst of suffering? Because God is not absent from suffering. It was the sovereign will of God for Jesus to come and camp among us, to come and live among us, to dwell with us. And then it was the sovereign will of God for Jesus to move from living among us to a cross, to die, to suffer, so that you would be free from sin, free from ultimate death, free to spend eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. God is good. God is not absent from suffering, but suffered himself so that we can be one day eternally free from any kind of suffering. In our passage, God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Then he says, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. God said to Moses, I will put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll put you in a hole or fissure of a rock and the fullness of my goodness will pass before you, will pass in front of you, will pass before your face. God, the rock, was cleft, was broken for you. The rock of ages was cleft for you, and the fullness of his goodness can be seen in Jesus Christ. When Moses came back down the mountains after he got the commandments for the second time. In Exodus 34, 29, it says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. As a result of experiencing the goodness of God in your life, you will shine. As a result of experiencing the goodness of God more and more, we will be continually changed and transformed. But even now, in this world, we do experience difficulty, suffering, tragedy, things that we can't fully grasp, things that we don't see the purpose in. 
when you can't understand the will of God, trust the heart of God. It's been said, when you can't trace his hand, trust the heart of God. When you can't trace his hand, when you can't see what he's doing, when you can't follow his writings, trust his heart. And his heart is for you. His heart is for this church. When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Let's pray. Lord, you are good, and everything that you do is good. Lord, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by your goodness this morning. Lord, may we see more and more the fullness of your goodness. Lord, your goodness that came to live among us and die for us so that we would never experience suffering eternally. Lord, that we would one day be free from any and all trouble. Lord, you are good. May we experience your goodness. May we not simply understand your goodness intellectually, but Lord, may your goodness affect us. Overwhelm us with your goodness this morning. That we may be more and more transformed by you. Praise all in your name. Amen.